George Cole and Alexander Lilly met together and planned and brainstormed and introduced a football program to the Ohio State University. <laughs> That's a moment that would forever <laughs> change history, at least mine. <laughs> this morning, we're going to talk about a meeting that, believe it or not, was even more important than that. I know it's hard to believe. It's a meeting of the early church in Acts chapter 15. It's a meeting that would ultimately change the course of history for the world. And what's at stake in this meeting in Acts chapter 15, really, is Christianity going to become one small sect of Judaism. In other words, you have to be circumcised. If you're a man, obey the law. If you're a man or a woman, is it going to stay that small little group of Judaism? Or is it going to become the worldwide life-giving, saving force that brings freedom in Jesus Christ that many of you in this room know? That's what's at stake in Acts chapter 15. In A.D. 49, almost 2,000 years ago, what happened here would change the course of history. And as I sat at Del Taco with a good buddy of mine, Justin, back there, the hallowed halls of Del Taco, we, we talked about Acts chapter 15 a little bit. And one of the things that, that he brought out that I really appreciated is this idea of disagreement in the church. It's not a new thing. Okay, this chapter is proof of it. Sometimes we go astray when we imagine that the early church was like this utopia on earth and everybody always got along and felt felt the same way about everything. That's just not biblical. And it's actually discouraging if you go down that route and believe that because you look, you think, hey, they were perfect. No wonder God used them. We're so messed up in some ways. You know, we disagree and we have weaknesses. How could God ever use us? But the truth is very encouraging, actually, when we realize that these were people, human beings, just like you and I, people with different ideas, different sin patterns, different struggles, and God, through his Holy Spirit, still used them to change the world. All of a sudden, we can say, wow, maybe, not maybe, yes, he can use us, too. He can use us because the same Holy Spirit that worked in their disagreements is at work today. And I think it's kind of cool of God to do this. I do a lot of premarital counseling, and the, the couples that scare me the most are the ones that I get together before they're married. Say, oh, we never disagree about anything. <laughs> I don't do this out loud at first, but inside I'm going, <laughs> Oh, boy. No, I actually like it when couples come to me and have already had a couple disagreements because disagreements are part of a good relationship. You know, if there's never a disagreement in a relationship, chances are one person has become a doormat and never states how they they really feel. So when I do premarital counseling, I always like to talk about not is disagreement going to come, and if it does, oh, my goodness, you must not have been meant to be together because that's the lie the world believes. 
I say, when disagreement comes, how are you going to work through it in a healthy way that strengthens your marriage instead of tears it apart? A good basketball coach doesn't have his team go out and practice with just their five players. All right, go at it, guys. We got our team, just go at it. What's he do? He puts a, a defense against them because he knows that's how it's going to be in the real game. And so they learn how to play against the defense, play through the conflict, and win. And that's what God is doing in this passage, I believe, part of what he's doing. He's showing us, hey, church, when you have disagreements, when you have trouble, individuals in the church even, when you, when you come into those hard moments, how do you go about moving forward? What do you do when conflict comes? And the, th- the three things that we see in this passage Number one, you're going to see that each side talked about what God is doing in their lives. They're not talking about me, 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 me. They're saying, look, this is what I'm seeing God do. This is what he's doing. And they, they shared that with each other. That assumes, number two, that they met with other believers. When the disagreement came up, they didn't separate. They, they got together and talked about it. And third, when they got together, they communicated clearly. So they, they talked about what God had done. They came together and they communicated clearly. So let's dive in. I want to give you the background of this disagreement. Verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. This is not a little tip. It's a sharp dispute. It got them upset. All right. And you can understand why Paul's been going around on this missionary journey that he just finished 1400 miles telling people, all you have to do to be saved is place your faith and trust in a savior that died in your place. He paid the price. It is finished. And people in these cities began to believe it. And come to Christ in droves. That's what was going on in Antioch. And all of a sudden, you've got people coming down, attempting to add to that message. Of course, Paul and Barnabas are going to debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed by the church there in Antioch, we believe, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. You talk about coming together to talk about your problems. This was no little jaunt across town. This was 300 miles these guys would travel to resolve a disagreement. In a time when it took an average of 20 miles a day to travel somewhere. You do the math. This is a serious investment of time and effort when you factor in going there and going back. It was important to them, crucial to them to get together and talk about the disagreement. So the church... Verse 3, sent them on their way. And check this out. As they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles, non-Jews, had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. Now, they're going through these cities where non-Jews had already come to Christ. And they're telling stories to them about how other non-Jews have come to Christ. And it says they're, they're excited about it. That should be exciting news. When we hear of someone coming to Christ, that should excite us like nothing else. 
They're, they're telling what God had done. Now, this is, of course, well-received by other Gentiles, right? They're like, yeah, that happened to us too. This is cool. This is awesome what God has done. Justin said, sort of tongue-in-cheek, is this one of the first examples of uh, politics in the church? <laughs> you know, Paul and Barnabas know there's this disagreement going on. So, hey, let's, <laughs> let's tell all these other people what, what God's doing. Let's, let's build our case. One thing we, w- we will say is if there was some of that, they did it in the right spirit. They weren't going around dogging the church in Jerusalem, which is where things often go south. You don't see that they were going there bad-mouthing Jews in Jerusalem. You don't see a hint of that at all. All you see is them emphasizing the positive work that God had done. That's, that's an important aspect of what we see going on there, something we ought to keep in mind whenever we have a disagreement with another church, with another individual focus on the positive of what what God is doing. When they came to Jerusalem, check this out, they were welcomed by the church. Even the church in Jerusalem welcomed them. They knew they differed on this, but you see this linking up like, hey, we're all part of the same church. Let's welcome you in here so we can work through this. And the apostles and elders. It's not just the leaders. You've got the many from the whole Jerusalem church There, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Now, here's how things started in Jerusalem. They they traveled the 300 miles. Imagine they rested a bit. They got to this meeting with elders, leaders, people of the church in Jerusalem, and it starts out in verse 5. Some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. Now, just pause right there. This is cool. Believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. If you know your Gospels and you remember the opposition between Jesus and those leaders that took place, and you read this, you're like, wow. There are Pharisees who came to believe in Jesus. See, God didn't only love the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes. He loved the Pharisees too. And many of them came to embrace the message of Jesus eventually. Acts 6 told us many of the priests in Jerusalem came to embrace Jesus. How cool is that? But these are guys that grew up in God's plan of Judaism, right? We, we do circumcise our men to set us apart from other people. We do follow these ceremonial laws. We do go to the temple so you can put yourself in their shoes and, and imagine what this whole change is like for them. They didn't have all of Paul's letters like we do that, that talk about the, the dividing wall coming down between Jew and Gentile. They, they didn't have that advantage. This is what they knew. This is what they grew up in. So they stand up and they say, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. It was a whole, whole lot more than just that surgery they were concerned about. They came right out and said, they must be circumcised and they must follow the law of Moses in order to be saved, to be made right with God. So you can see the gravity of this. If this is true, if what they said was true, it would change our lives in here radically. You can think of the myriad of ways. But they go on. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. He's one of three guys to speak at this meeting. You got Peter who's going to speak. We'll put Paul and Barnabas together. 
Then you got James who's going to speak. And one of the things I want to point out before any of them talk is just each of these have written letters that you have in your Bible. So as you read your New Testament, keep, keep that in mind. You know, Peter, first and second Peter, James wrote the book of James. Paul wrote much of your New Testament. And you're going to see what each of them said. And we'll talk about it in a moment. Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. Now let's pause for a second. What's he talking about here if you've been with us in our book of Acts? When did God tell Peter to reach out to a Gentile? Who did he tell him to go? Cornelius, Acts chapter 10. Remember, Peter had the dream on the roof. Cornelius had a vision from an angel. He sent men to get Peter. Peter went back. And this was revolutionary at the time. He went into his home and told him that to be saved, you must put your faith in Jesus. And he said nothing about the law, obeying the law at that moment. And you remember the passage said, just as Peter says here, God gave them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Now, we believe that incident happened 10 years prior to this meeting. A whole decade had gone by. And you can see that the early church still didn't fully grab onto what that meant. It's like, okay, God did that there, but let's get back to how it's always been. And God wanted to show them, no, we're not supposed to go back to how it's always been. This was a groundbreaking, changing event. So he's going on sharing what God did. Verse 9. He did not discriminate between us and them, the Jews and the Gentiles, for he purified their hearts, how? By faith. Now then, why do you test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? Peter's like, Look, guys, this hasn't worked for us. Why are you going to try to put it on them? And he goes on to say, no, we believe it is through the grace, God's free gift of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Now, that just the way he landed that sentence probably would have sent ripples through that Jewish room because it would be normal for him to say they are saved just like we are. Of course, we're saved, and they're saved the same way. But he, he goes, we are saved just like they are. Can you imagine being a group of Jews like, whoa, whoa. This, this is revolutionary. I'm, where are you going? Where are you going, Peter? And I want to talk about the yoke. The yoke, as you know, physically speaking, was something that hooked up two oxen. Often an older, larger oxen to a younger oxen that needed to learn the process. And they would walk together to plow a field. It came to be used metaphorically of the Jewish rabbis. Every Jewish rabbi had a certain set of rules that he taught, this is how you get close to God. So when a student says, hey, I want to learn, they would have to decide which rabbi's yoke do I want to join myself in. Do I like this rabbi's yoke, how he gets to God, or this one, or this one? And they choose one, and they would join that yoke with the rabbi of learning, how do I get close to God? As, as Peter says, these yokes were heavy. They did not work. They, 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 they were crushing. And then Jesus came along and he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, for I'll give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden 
is light. Humble and gentle in spirit. What's he saying? He's saying, I did the work. Or at that point, I will do the work on the cross. That's what it is finished on the cross means. It means he carried the load so that you and I can be made right with God simply by putting our trust in the blood that was poured out on that cross. That's a revolutionary concept for the people in this room. And so you, you got to wrestle with this question, though. What about the, the law? How, do, how does the law that God gave, God gave it, how does that relate to this whole new concept of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus alone? And you start to think about how did Jesus feel about the law in, in, in the Old Testament? And, and you think back to Matthew chapter 4 where he has his temptation in the desert for 40 years and Satan comes at him. And do you know which book of the Bible Jesus quoted from three times to battle Satan? Deuteronomy. Evidently he was doing his quiet time in Deuteronomy maybe that week. How many of you guys have been in Deuteronomy this week? <laughs> he valued those words in Deuteronomy enough that they were right there when he came into that key battle. Remember, he, he talked about not the smallest letter or the least stroke of a pen disappearing from the law until all has been accomplished or fulfilled. That smallest letter is almost like a comma. And the, when he talks about the least stroke of a pen, it's like a little serif. If you know your fonts on your computer, a serif is just a little tiny curve that makes a letter go from straight to... That's, a, that's what he's talking about. That's how much he valued it. To so say, how does this go together? And Warren Wearsby, I love Warren Wearsby. If you ever read a book by him, you, you'll be nourished. He said this about the law. He, he, he equated it with an acorn. Okay, think about an acorn. Okay, there's two ways to destroy an acorn. One is to take a hammer to it and crush it. That would destroy an acorn. Another way is to plant that acorn in the ground and allow it to be opened up and out of it for the oak tree that it was meant to produce to, to come to be, for it to reach its fulfillment. And that's what Jesus did. He did not take a hammer to the law he said, the law was there to point to me, guys. That's what he told the Pharisees. You know it backwards and forwards, but you miss that. It points to me. I am the, the oak tree that all of that was pointing to. And you're stuck on the acorn. It, it's this idea that Paul later talks about. He gave us the law as a teacher to lead us to Jesus. Law was just there to say, hey, I can't keep all this. <laughs> and some of us have tried in this room for portions of our life just to try to be right with God. <laughs> and you know the weight because you never get there because he is perfectly holy and we are not. It wasn't meant to save us. It was meant to say you need a savior. So that's the relation between the two. Now check this out. After he finishes talking... Verse 12, the whole assembly became silent. And then they, as they listened to Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul get up, the room becomes silent. And what do they tell about? What God has done. They talk about the signs and wonders that God did through the Gentiles, through them. 
doesn't go into much detail because you and I have read that already in this book. We've, we've heard of the miracles. The, the most recent one, the healing of a lame man. We, we've seen how God has verified their message. It says, when they finished, here goes the third guy, James. And this is cool to me. We'll, we'll share it in a minute. I love this. James spoke up. Brothers, he said, and James was the leader of the Jerusalem church, okay? Listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. He calls Peter Simon. Simon's a Jewish name. He's talking to a Jewish crowd. He's smart as he goes through this. Listen, you've listened to a fellow Jew already share how God used him to bring a Gentile. And then he goes to the Old Testament, which is also smart, talking to a room that grew up and holding on to that tradition, Amos, that truth. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, he quotes Amos, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. That's the nation of Israel. Okay, Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name. That's the key line. That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. He's saying, guys, your God, our Father, has been predicting that Gentiles would come to salvation and that they would remain Gentiles in the process. He's talking about the end of time when Israel is going to be restored in their glory and Gentiles will be saved by saying, hey, if that's going to happen at the end of time, it makes sense that God would save Gentiles and not require them to be Jews. That's what it says. And what I love about this is the unity because if you were speaking in political terms... You've got Paul, who's the liberal. Just, just go with me on this. Paul's sort of the liberal, like it's okay for Gentiles to be saved. you got Peter, who I'd call a moderate. He's still in the Jerusalem church, but he's led one Gentile to Christ that we know of, some in Samaria as well, maybe. And then you got James, who is known as the conservative Jewish leader of the Jerusalem church. And yet, through the Holy Spirit, they all confirm the same truth. When God wants to get something done, He's going to bring unity, and he's going to show everybody, this is what I have decided. So check out James' conclusion of all this. It's my judgment, therefore. Here's the, the bottom line, and you've got to love this, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Those words have rippled down through time into many of our lives in this room. They have forever changed the way the the church shares the gospel. You don't have to be circumcised according to the Jewish law. You don't have to follow all those ceremonial laws. Do not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And this got me thinking about how do we sometimes almost unthinkingly as a church make it difficult? For people to come to God. It's obviously not his will. It hasn't been his will since it's been made clear in this meeting. We're not supposed to make it difficult for people to come to God. I think it challenges us on a number of levels. One is we all at some point in our lives need to be convicted that, wow, God, is the way I'm living right now really showing the, the truth of the gospel and the life change that that can bring? Is 
Am I obeying you and presenting this living picture to people around me so that when I speak the gospel of Christ, they see it and, and they want what I have? Or am I saying one thing with my mouth and living a hypocritical life otherwise, thus making it difficult for that person to really believe what I say? God does not want that. He does not want you and I making it difficult with our lifestyle. I, I think about even as people come into the church and we, and we talk about salvation sometimes, there's a huge theological mistake that I think many in the church world have even bought into, and I'll just call it, for the sake of argument, instant perfection. It's this idea that in order for, you, for me to know that you're really saved, I've got to see that you've got every one of your ducks in a row, just like that, all taken care of. I know you just believed this morning, but... I don't want to hear about struggle. If you're really saved, you got the Holy Spirit now. There shouldn't be a battle. Have you guys ever run into that? It's a confusion of a couple things. There's three parts to our salvation from a biblical perspective. One is justification. That's when you place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Justification is when God sees that faith, says you are right with God. Because you trusted in Jesus. That's an instant act. Just like that. Your eternal destiny, your position with God is taken care of. But there's a second part. It's called sanctification. It's been mentioned this morning. That's the, the growing aspect of our lives. We start out as spiritual babies. That's why Paul talks about things like growing. Milk versus meat and things like that. And we grow from spiritual babies into spiritual teenagers and spiritual adults. There are those who would eliminate that whole process and make it sound to you as though if you don't got all that stuff nailed, I really doubt whether you really got saved or not. And Paul, to me, would have never written a book like Corinthians to a church where he says, hey, brothers, you're brothers, but you're still worldly. All right, there's, there's this growing process. And so we got to be careful not to expect instant perfection from people that place their faith in Jesus Christ. That's just not biblical. The third part is glorification. That's an instant moment as well where we're translated into eternity and our new spiritual bodies and no longer do we have this flesh that battles with, our, with, our, with the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So don't demand instant perfection of people. I think another red flag is if you've ever been to or if you ever walk into a church that says, unless you go here, you're not really saved, run. Okay, like unless you go to this specific church, you are not saved. Run away. I don't see that anywhere in the New Testament. I don't see that anywhere in what Paul's gospel that he preaches is. He preaches Jesus, not you must go to this church. Or, close counterpart that we've got to guard against, even the things that we love and believe in for our church. Like let's say we gradually started to shift into, hey, unless you're in a missional community, you're probably not really a Christian. Now, do, you, do we believe in gathering together and going out and serving and making disciples? Yeah, all those things are biblical. But guess what? The way we do missional community at this church is not the only way to do it. And just because someone's not in a missional community does not give us the right to say or act as though that person is not a real Christian. We've got to be careful of that. I love that decision. They shouldn't make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God, neither should we. 
Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Now, what I see in these two short verses together is there are some things worth fighting for. And in this case, one thing, the truth of the gospel of how people come to Jesus. If anybody begins to add to the gospel of simple faith in Jesus Christ, it's worth fighting over. Paul said in Galatians 1, if anyone presents a different gospel to you, let him be eternally condemned. Strong words. He said to the people in Galatians that wanted people to be circumcised, to be saved, he said, I wish they'd go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Do you know that was in your Bible? That's how strongly Paul felt about the gospel that is only by grace through faith. It is worth fighting for. So as you encounter a world and folks that come from all different paths, when you hear something that adds anything to a simple faith in Jesus, stand up for the gospel. There are other things that are not worth fighting for. And I wonder how many times we get this flip-flop. We don't fight the first one, but we spend a lot of time fighting about these other ones. And here, here are the examples in this passage. They write to them, okay, it's salvation by grace through faith in Jesus alone. That's, that's settled. But now we should tell them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Now what's going on here? You look at this list of four things that they tell them to abstain from. First, there's food polluted by idols. You know, in other words, there, was, there were a lot of idolatrous services in these cities at the temples and there would be food involved. And they would say, he, they would say that food was polluted by idols from a Jewish perspective. From sexual immorality, that's that's not just a matter of preference. That's uh, God's will in the Old and New Testament. Any sex, sexual activity outside the parameters of marriage, be it before or during with someone else or outside the parameters of heterosexual marriage, that's, that's a given. That's something that's not a matter of preference. It's just a law. But the food polluted by idols, the meat of strangled animals, and meat has blood in it, these are all from the Old Testament Jewish law. And he says in verse 21 why they should set those things aside. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. What's he saying? He's saying, okay, guys, we got the salvation issue settled. It's by grace through faith. But there's some other things that really offend these Jewish brothers of yours that grew up in this system. And they make it hard for them to feel comfortable fellowshipping. So out of love... These other three things, out of love, if you're doing those, set them aside because you need to love these Jewish believers more than you love those things. Unity is more important than how you feel about any of those things, so set them aside to promote unity in the church. You look at that list and say, how does that work today? Most of us aren't eating food polluted by idols or maybe strangled animals or food from blood, but... I think about what are the issues that often cause disagreement and division among Christians. What are the gray areas today? And I just think of two. You can probably think of many, but how does this play out? I think of the, the issue of alcohol. 
is it okay for someone to have a cold beer? As long as they're 21, they're not getting drunk and they're not causing someone else to stumble. Is that okay? And you got many Christians on one side that feel like this is something that's okay. And you got many Christians on another that say, no, never. We don't have to wonder how to handle that. Paul talks about in Romans 14, he says, on these gray areas, whatever you believe, here's the first step, keep to yourself. In other words, you don't need to go around on a campaign trying to convince everybody else why you believe how you believe and why they should believe it too. If it's a gray area, keep it to yourself. Number two, if you're with somebody that it bothers, set it aside. Because at that point, it becomes an issue of, do I love this drink more than I love this person? Or do I love this person more than I love this drink? Don't cause another brother to stumble because of your preferences. Be willing to let those aside in the situations where you need to. Another one, another example of a gray area. Should I I raise my kid when they get to school age in a home school, a Christian school, or a public school? Now, there are people that get fired up on all, all three of these. You got different arguments for all different points. We've so far been in two of the camps. We've been in public school and Christian school. We may try the third one at some point. You never know. But here's the deal. Whatever you believe on that or prayed about in your family and come to, do it. Just keep it to yourself. That doesn't mean you can never tell anybody what you're doing. It just means you don't have to go on a campaign to tell every other Christian why they should do it that way or why they shouldn't do it that way. These are great issues. Some things are worth fighting for. Some things are not. You can probably think of a few others. Now, here's the thing. Today, we love to go on Facebook and rant about things. And most of the things we rant about are in the second category. And we love to demonize people that are on the other side of the issue in our rant. So I want to propose that before we go on Facebook, we ask, number one, is this in category one? Is it something that needs to be fought about? And if it is, I'm going to speak the truth. But even then, I'm going to speak it in love. And if it's in number two, I probably spend my time better typing about something else. Because it's just not worth fighting for. Some things are worth fighting for, some are not. 15 verse 22 says, Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas. What's cool about these two, Judas is a Jewish name. Silas is a a Greek name. So this is a smart choice. Like, they're not just sending two of the Jewish, Jewish guys. They're sending a Jewish, Jewish guy and a Jewish, Greek guy, because that way, when they go back to this Greek city of Antioch, there's balance. Men who are leaders among the believers. So you got Judas, Silas, Paul, Barnabas, and they send the letter. Here's the big letter. And you can imagine the church in Antioch waiting, saying, what are they saying? What, what's the answer? History hangs in the balance. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So they start right off saying, these guys that came down to Antioch saying this, we weren't behind that. And you get that sometimes, right? Somebody will pretend like, hey, I'm representing this group, and really they're not. They're just kind of rogue. They make that clear. Those guys, we, d- we don't authorize what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul. 
men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we're sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. You see the clear communication going on? This next line's huge. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Which comes first in that phrase? The Holy Spirit. This whole decision was guided by the Holy Spirit of God. God's ways came before their ways. It was guided by the Holy Spirit. This is what he guided us to, not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. These are not things they had to do to be saved. These are things they needed to do to promote unity in the church. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. This is a cool glimpse into probably what happened with most of Paul's letters that he would let later write. You know, you and, you and I have them all in one nice little Bible that we can pull out and read them all in an afternoon if we want. When he originally wrote them, he sent them to churches, and somebody at that church would receive it, and they'd call everybody together and say, let's hear what, what it says. That's what's happening with this letter from Jerusalem. Judas and Silas, these guys from Jerusalem who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. That's cool. These two guys from the Jerusalem church are down there encouraging and strengthening this church in Antioch in the aftermath of this question. So after spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Pretty cool, right? When they disagreed, they came together with other believers. They talked about what God was doing, and they communicated clearly. They settled what's worth fighting for, the gospel, and what is not worth fighting over some of these secondary issues. At stake, and this is the first closing point here. What does this mean? We ought to celebrate the freedom that came out of this meeting that you and I enjoy today in Jesus. If you placed your trust in Jesus Christ. Paul would later say, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Why then be burdened again by a yoke of slavery? He said that to a church that knew the message of freedom and these guys came to. And I would say the same thing to you. If you've been set free in Jesus Christ, don't allow any yokes of slavery to be thrown upon you. Enjoy your freedom. God wants you to enjoy your life, to have joy in your life as a believer. Don't let those yokes of slavery come upon you. It doesn't mean life's never going to be hard. I'm not saying that. But don't make it harder than it has to be because you take stuff on that you shouldn't. Second, if you're, if you're here and you hear that message and you say, man, I, I feel like I'm the burdened one. I've been trying to find this way to God and it's heavy. It weighs on me because I know I'm not there. The message to you is I'll embrace this simple faith in a Savior that paid the price for you on the cross. He took your sin upon himself. Everything you can think of, that that dark moment that you cannot get out of the corner of your mind, he took it upon himself. The Bible says he became sin, a sin offering for our place. 
He became sin and he gave us the righteousness of God if we'll believe in what he did. And he rose again, indicating that God the Father accepted that sacrifice. That it was finished. If that's you, you need to embrace that and experience this freedom that's here for you. Second, I just ask you, are you in any disagreements right now? Anybody in a disagreement, especially with another believer, maybe even another church? I ask you, are you following the example that you've seen in this passage? Are you getting together with the other believers? Are you talking about what God's doing in your life and listening to what they're sharing about what God's doing in theirs? And are you communicating? Last but not least, what are you fighting about? You fighting for what's important, the truth of the gospel? Even as you do that, if you are, are you doing it in love? Or are you fighting about a whole bunch of stuff that in the grand scheme of things just really shows that we're selfish and want our way more than we care about that other person?